Well, good morning. I'm a little bit under the weather today, so I may sound a little goofy, but that's okay. Well, I hope that, uh, I hope during our time of worship this morning, and as we approach the time of sitting under God's word, I hope that you personally are enjoying God and taking this time to commune with him. I hope that you've done that all week long. Man, I really get the sense when, when I'm when I'm sitting out here, I've, I've always kind of felt it right here, uh, but I, I feel it here, too. Man, we're just kind of uptight sometimes, aren't we? We're just tense. And uh, I, I see the temptation in myself, even as being, you know, whatever you want to call it, lead worshiper, worship leader. I, I don't care what phrase you use, but w- whatever it is, I, I feel the temptation uh, even in, in kind of that role that we come in expect, expecting to be performed to. And, and that causes a, a lot of dryness out here. And I, I just want to encourage you. Uh, when, when we when we begin a worship service and you feel that temptation there, man, fight that with everything that's in you to be reserved, to be dry, to de- desire a performance from these guys here. And I just want to encourage you with everything in me just to fight that and enjoy God. Use that time to commune with him. And worship Him. To practice corporately what you've practiced all week long personally, hopefully. And if you haven't done that, that needs to be the first order of business. Because you will not worship corporately if you don't worship individually throughout the week. And so let's be encouraged with that. And may we enjoy God just during this time of, of teaching and, and hearing from Him what He has to say to us this morning. Um, so let's begin. We saw hope revealed last week. That was the, the theme of the message, hope revealed in chapter 2. That was the text that we taught from. And the author tells us early on in chapter 2 that there's a close relative in Bethlehem. And his name is Boaz. And hope re- was revealed in several ways in that first verse of chapter 2. First of all, we saw that hope was revealed through the issue of leverate marriage. And we studied that from uh, Deuteronomy uh, 12 and Genesis 38. Uh, So hope was revealed through the issue of leverate marriage and redemption. And we'll look at the issue of redemption later. And that's what we read about today. That's what Chuck read. But hope was revealed in the fact that Boaz was a close relative. Uh, Secondly, hope was revealed in the fact that Boaz was wealthy. Verse 1 of chapter 2 emphasized his wealth, emphasizing the fact that Boaz was completely capable of providing for the needs of Naomi and Ruth. He told Ruth to eat. He told her to drink. He told his servants not to touch her. He was protecting her from harm that would come on her in the field. So he showed himself as being a provider and protector And finally, we learned that hope was revealed through Boaz's character. Boaz was sacrificial. He was kind. 
He greeted his servants in the field with a blessing, and they blessed him in return. We talked about how Ruth came to the field of Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, by the sovereign hand of God. The tongue-in-cheek language of the text, if you'll remember last week, said that she happened to come to the field of Boaz. I love that. And we quoted from Proverbs 16:9, which says, In his heart a man plans his course, but it's the Lord that determines his steps. What a beautiful thing. Ruth came to the field of Boaz by the sovereign hand of the Lord. In verses 11 and 12, we saw that Ruth's ability to leave Moab, to come to Bethlehem and to care for Naomi, was a direct result of her taking refuge under the wings of God. As we said last week, God isn't an employer looking for employees. That's not the relationship. But the scripture describes him as an eagle, as a father who just desires to hide his children under his wing. To protect them, to provide for them. And that's why Ruth was able to leave everything behind and to serve Naomi. Her works poured out from her worship. And you see that in Isaiah, don't you? We talk about that passage often in worship. The things that we do flow out of relationship. It's not the other way around. So this is where we pick up chapter 3. And if you remember, as we ended last week, Ruth and Naomi were in dialogue. They were talking to each other. She was telling her uh, that Boaz was the one who let her glean in the fields. And it was at the end of barley harvest here. And if you remember, she actually twisted some of the words of Boaz. In giving the account to Naomi of what happened, she said, Well, he told me to keep gleaning. And he, and he told me to stay with his servants in the field. And do you remember what Naomi said? The wise counselor within Ruth, being Ruth's elder, she counseled her gently. She rebuked her gently by saying, that's a good thing that you glean. So stay with the maids in the field. Naomi knew enough of God's plan and providence to know that this was all God, that this was all providential. And so she urged her to stay with the young women in the field. Whereas Naomi's first desire was potentially to run ahead of God, to try to run after, possibly run after the young men in the field by staying with them as they gleaned. But she was encouraged gently. She was rebuked gently by Naomi to stay with the maids in the field. She didn't want her to make a foolish decision. So here in verse 1 of chapter 3 in Ruth, it says... Naomi, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, And you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what to do. And she said to her, all that you say, I will do. So Naomi devises a plan. It's a a pretty bold plan. Very risky. 
She knew that Boaz would be down at the threshing floor winnowing grain. And she knew that that would happen in the evening. At the time when the wind would be the strongest. She also knew that after the work was done that there would be a time of celebration. She knew that there would be a party. Because harvest time was a happy time. She also knew that Boaz would have to spend the night. Threshing floors were high places, very open fields, and very vulnerable to theft. So Boaz would have to stay there all night in order to protect his crop. And Naomi knew that. And at first blush, when you first read it, if you're like me, it, it you know, it looks pretty seductive. It doesn't look at first blush like it's really altogether pure. She's told Ruth to go clean herself, to put on her best clothes, to wear perfume, and go lie down with Boaz when he's finished eating and drinking. No doubt this is all very forward. Absolutely. No doubt about that. In fact, knowing that a couple words used in this passage also serve as euphemisms in other parts of the Bible makes it even more on the surface risque, difficult to deal with, a struggle if you really try to honestly deal with the passage. So the question is, at first blush, what was Naomi thinking? What was her motive? Were Ruth's and Naomi's motives completely pure? And let's say we give these ladies the benefit of the doubt and say that they were pure. How would Boaz perceive this? Would he proceed as a man of character or would he react badly, possibly even taking advantage of young Ruth? Well, think back with me to something that Naomi said earlier. It's in verse 4. Naomi told Ruth that Boaz would tell her what to do. It appears here when you look at that, that Naomi knows something. I mean, as we said, she's already proved herself to be a wise counselor to Ruth, for the most part, except the whole first chapter thing about go back to your own gods. I mean, she was talking out of her head right there. But other than that, she proved herself to be a wise counselor to Ruth. And she appears to know something here. She appears to know something about Boaz. About his character. If you'll remember back in chapter 2. She made it obvious that she knows who Boaz is. She knows he's a close relative. And tradition says that he's Elimelech's nephew. But we really don't know. But what she does know is that Boaz is a man of great character. And we don't just get that idea from this verse. But also when you read the last verse of this chapter. You kind of get the idea that Naomi knows something about Boaz. And what she knows is that he's a solid guy. He's a man of great character. She knows that he's most likely not a man who's going to take take advantage of Ruth. In fact, up until now, he's shown nothing but kindness to her. He's taken care of her needs. He's protected her from other men in the field. In fact, the evidence may show that Ruth, that Boaz was in love with Ruth all along. 
that from the very beginning he was just smitten with this girl. But he's an older man, maybe as much as a generation older, and probably would have never taken the initiative to propose to her. And I think Naomi knew this. But she knew that Boaz would respond righteously. And of course, she knew Ruth too. She knew Ruth's character. And the author goes into great detail to show this about Ruth. The fact that she's a true believer. You remember in chapter 1, the author spent a lot of time showing, showing us the difference between Orpah, who returned back to her own gods, and then Ruth, clinging to Naomi, clinging to God, and clinging to God's people. So we see clearly throughout the book that she is a believer. She has come under the wings of God. She's come under the provision of God, under the protection of God. The author has shown her to be a believer, sacrificial, caring, a hard worker, humble, thankful, and finally, as we see here, teachable. Ruth is teachable. I mean, she is a a young lady with just remarkable character. And she's told to uncover the feet of Boaz and lie down there. This was Ruth's marriage proposal. And it's remarkable, really. It's remarkable to see her lying at the feet, at the feet of her Redeemer. Very intimate, uncomfortable maybe, but I would say far from impure. And the question is, is why do we feel that way? Why do we kick against this? Why is it so hard for us to see the intimacy without going beyond that? And at first blush saying that's completely impure. That's completely improper. In fact, Ruth finds herself in the company of a lot of other great women in history who have found themselves at the feet of their Redeemer. When you see Mary in the Gospels, where is she? How many times do you see her just sitting at the feet of Jesus? At times expressing love in ways, there again to us, that seems very provocative. Very impure. Weeping. And wiping Jesus' feet with their hair. How much more intimate do you get than that? We talked about Ruth anointing herself. And what did Mary do? She anointed Jesus with oil from head to toe. With very expensive nard. On the surface, very provocative. Very intimate. But was it impure? And I think that's worship. I think that's worship. I mean, what is God more pleased with? A people that are reserved? A people that hold back? Or is He more pleased with the people that are intimate with him, a people that will sit at at his feet, 
that will commune with him, that will put aside all the distractions of the world and just sit at his feet and just listen and just be real. We're a prideful people. We're a people who are afraid to be transparent before the Lord and before other people. To let other people, you know, in our culture, it's so easy to try to fall into the the cool mindset. Hold back all my emotions. Hold back the way I, I really feel about things. It's uncool to show that you care in our culture, isn't it? It's an uncool thing. It's an uncool thing to put your heart out there before the Lord. To be transparent and open and worship before him. I mean, how much more transparent do you get other than dancing naked before the Lord? Now, I don't want to see that in here. I mean, that's not a corporate worship thing. Let's not do that. David did that in privacy. But his wife was there. And she rebuked him for it. And who was God pleased with? Who did God Whose worship did God receive? Let's not be a prideful people. Let's be transparent. Daily, you should find yourself sitting at the feet of your Redeemer. Just simply listening. With all distractions removed. You wonder why you're so dry? You wonder why you're in a spiritual famine? Do you know an Amos... That God actually says that he can send spiritual famine on you for a time. Not a famine of not having food or water. But a famine of not hearing the word of the Lord. God says he does that. And why does he do that? Could it be because we're not willing, like Ruth, to be teachable? To be open. To approach God at a heart level. To desire when we hear the Lord. To do something with it. To apply. I mean how often do we approach the scripture. With the heart just to learn something else. At best. If we do even find ourselves sitting at his feet. But this is where Ruth was. Far from impure. Very uncomfortable because it was very intimate. Very heart level. And it goes on. Verse 8. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. I love that little Proverbs 31 twist there. Now, it's true I'm a close relative. However, there's a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. 
Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So in verse 9, Ruth makes her official marriage proposal. She says, spread your covering over your maid, your maid or spread your wings over your maid. The word there, talith, or prayer shawl, taken from an old Jewish ritual where the groom-to-be would spread his robe over his bride-to-be to show his commitment, his intent to protect, to provide. And Boaz is completely overwhelmed by Ruth's proposal. Completely emotional. And this issue of redemption is really important. Last week, we talked about the importance of levirate marriage, and we talked about how that provided so much hope for these women. But that's a different issue than the issue of redemption. In fact, really what you see in the book of Ruth is not really literal levirate marriage like like we read in Deuteronomy and Genesis. It's levirate-like marriage, but it's not literally levirate marriage because Ruth was not Elimelech's widow And Boaz was not Elimelech's brother. So it's not completely the same thing. But it is a distinct issue nonetheless from that of redemption. And there are differing levels of redemption as you saw in what Chuck read earlier. You've got redemption of property, redemption of people's belongings, or personal redemption where someone who was indebted, who went into poverty and couldn't afford to to keep up the land... They may, after selling their personal property and belongings, they may have to sell themselves. Now, it never went out of the family. The land always remained in the family. It would be more to us today as if they were renting and all of the money for the land or the belongings or the personal property, all the money was fronted. But at the year of Jubilee or whenever those things could be redeemed, the property returned to the family. And it struck me when I saw on the screen, it just ended at one of those verses where it talked about if someone could get the money to pay their way out of property, that they could do that. That that was kind of laughable because you can imagine that rarely happened, which gives this story An even more beautiful twist, because if Ruth and Naomi had any hope, it was going to be in their Redeemer. And so the most likely scenario would be for this relative to redeem them, paying their debt, redeeming their land, redeeming their belongings, redeeming them from the bondage of slavery. And this is Ruth's desire, that he redeem her. And Boaz is completely willing to do it, but there's a catch. He informs her of one potential problem, that there's a closer relative than him. Can you imagine how heartbreaking this has to be? I mean, you know, we get the story in a nutshell. But you have to imagine that there's plenty of time between all the events that happen here. Plenty of time to to become anxious and to really desire to see the Lord move. This has to be heartbreaking because I believe that Boaz was actually in love with Ruth. I believe that Ruth at this point was actually in love with Boaz. She had to wonder whether a closer relative would care for her the way that Boaz 
had cared for her. He was a man of great character. And his character reveals itself even at a moment like this. He remains calm. He remains level-headed. And he tells her this in verse 13. He says, Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So he tells her to rest. Man of character can wait. Then verse 14 says, So she lay down at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So Ruth returns to Naomi. Now this issue of the threshing floor is an interesting issue. We've passed over this and we need to, we need to talk about this. The threshing floor in scripture is literally a portion of the field that's either hardened earth or stone. And as we said earlier, it's a high place. It's a high place so that when they, when they winnow and thresh, when they throw all of the grain in the air, the wind can separate the wheat from the chaff. So it's a high place. It's a flat place. But spiritually, as you read the scriptures, you'll find that it's always, most of the time, a place of decision, a place of sacrifice, a place of worship, and finally, a place of judgment. In King David's life, the threshing floor was a place of decision. In the passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, in that passage, David takes a census of the men of Israel. He wants to see how big his army is. It's an arrogant thing. He's come to a point in his leadership where he's not really, at this point, trusting in the Lord's provision. He wants to see how big his army is. He wants to see how many fighting men he has. And he does this against Joab's counsel. Joab tells him it's an unwise thing to do. And so the Lord judges him for it. And the Lord gives him three options. He says, David, you've got three options here. You can either have three years of famine, or you can have three months of being swept away by your enemies, or you can have three days of plague. You choose. And so David chooses the latter. David says, far be it for me to fall into the hands of men. I'd rather fall into the Lord's hand. You're a merciful and gracious God. And so the Lord gives him three days of plague. The Lord wipes out 70,000 of David's men immediately. And David is crushed. David is grieved. The, the scripture even says that it grieved the Lord. I mean, this was, I mean, you can imagine doing that and knowing that it's your sin that caused it. And the response of David was to fall face down before the Lord. He and his men just repenting before the Lord. And so the Lord relented. And the Lord told him to go Go down to the threshing floor. 
and to sacrifice there. So David went down to the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, and he bought the threshing floor. And there he built an altar and he sacrificed. And the scripture says in verses 27 and 28 of that passage, 1 Chronicles 21, it says that the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. And at that time, when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. So the threshing floor was a place of decision for David. It was also a place of sacrifice and worship. That same plot of land would later become the place where Solomon's temple would be built. In 2 Chronicles 3, we find that Solomon would build the temple there on that very threshing floor on Mount Moriah. Earlier, the place where Abraham had went up to sacrifice his son Isaac in obedience to God's command. To sacrifice his son. And you remember how that turned out? God stayed his hand. And then Abraham offered sacrifices there. He worshipped the Lord there on that very mount, Mount Moriah. So for all three of these men, the threshing floor was a serious place. The threshing floor was a place of decision. It was a place of sacrifice, a place of worship. And finally, it's a place of judgment. The threshing floor is a place of judgment. It was literally a place where the grain was separated from the stalks. And sharp instruments were used to do this. And it was either done by hand, by beating the stalks with the sharp instruments, or by using uh, a combine-like device and pulling it across the grain using oxen. But this was to separate the grain from the chaff. John the Baptist says of Jesus in Matthew 3:12 that Jesus winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the threshing floor is seen as a place of judgment. Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. And so this is where Ruth is going to meet Boaz. A place of decision, a place of sacrifice, a place of worship. And it's the place where the bride meets her redeemer. The threshing floor is a place where God is separating the wheat from the chaff. And it's a place, as his bride, where we meet our Redeemer. Always a place of decision, a place of sacrifice, a place of worship, and a place of judgment. So that's the threshing floor. In verse 16, the author says... When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So here we see that hope 
is deferred for Ruth. Hope is delayed. She finds herself waiting once again. And Boaz told her to, to wait. And that, that's what she's going to do. And Ruth is, Ruth is just remarkable in this way. Because have you noticed how she always applies what she's taught? She's told to wait. And that's what she does. She's teachable. She's obedient. She's patient. You find her here just waiting. Not letting her emotions get the best of her. Not claiming her rights in any way. You just find Ruth here waiting. And can you imagine how long that night must have felt for Ruth? And Naomi has learned something too. She's waiting. Alongside Ruth, you find Naomi here waiting. She's learned a lot since her husband's death. The same lady who went on a rant in chapter 1 about how the Lord was against her. You remember that passage? It's the same lady here who's finding out with her life how God provides. Because Boaz... I just love it. Towards the end of the chapter, what does Boaz say to Ruth? He says, here, let me give you some grain. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And so this, this woman, Naomi, who has accused God of bringing her back empty-handed, she's learning with her life how God provides. We see a different Naomi here. And she even tells Ruth in verse 18. I love it. Wait, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. She knows the character of Boaz. And she knows that Boaz is out for her good. That he will settle this matter of redemption today. Well, what about you? Are you sure today that God will settle this matter of redemption in you? I wonder how many of us individually find ourselves at God's threshing floor. I realize and, and truly believe we may even be there as a congregation. But we're at a place of decision where well, we're at a place where God is calling us to sacrifice. It's so easy. A year and a half ago, approximately, it may be two years now, where when we walked through these doors for the first time, that was an easy time for us to settle in. And to become comfortable and to think, oh, we got a nice building now. We're legitimate. This is what church is. And I want to tell you that if that's where we are as a body, then I praise God and I would welcome from Him a time of spiritual famine, of learning no more truth, but dealing with the sin at hand. 
having this nice building, having all the nice, nice stuff that goes along with the building, if anything is just going to make it more difficult for us to be a real church and to actually be God's people, we have to be careful not to settle in and to think that this is it. It should concern us that that stays empty. Not having it filled and not having people go through that, the baptismal water to count noses and to say that we baptized someone, but because it flowed from our evangelism, which flowed from a passion of knowing God and worshiping Him, and because we worshiped Him, we're sharing that love. Because we can't keep it contained. And I wonder corporately if we're at a place like the threshing floor. Where we're at a place of decision. Of sacrifice. And worship. And judgment. And the question there is what will we do with that? If that is true, will we sweep it under the rug? Will we just try to do better? Will we just become hardened to that and ignore it? Or will we as a body repent? Will we cry out to the Lord and repent? Because I'm going to tell you, it's a, it's a lot harder than seeing 70,000 men physically be killed, what's the worst outcome for a dead body of believers? So we may be there as a congregation. We can ask God to show us that. But you may be there individually. You know, there may be those here who wonder day after day whether I'm the wheat or the chaff. You may be inwardly pondering that day by day. Am I one of God's elect? And I just, I just feel like I need to tell you, instead of trying to figure that out, do what Jesus said. In the Gospels, he says, come to me. Instead of daily wondering, am I the wheat or the chaff? Have a relationship with him. Walk with him. Desire to know him. Beg God to save you. He says, come to me. And by doing that, you prove yourself to be his. By sitting at his feet, by communing with him. You'll prove yourselves to be the wheat by repenting of your sins and drawing near to Christ today. Amen. Well, music team, let's come up and let's sing about the love of our great God. Let's stand together.